making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as such superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Uh, if you look at the... T- uh, many commentators say this is the most eloquent few verses in all of the Bible. That it uh, and it is just densely packed. There's so much in these few verses, and what I think he's doing is giving us the theme of the entire book of Hebrews. And that's the danger here. Is I'll tell you what these four verses are, but that's actually saying what the book of Hebrews is about. But I think what we, we're hearing in the book of Hebrews is something that we've heard from both John and Paul, and that, that there is a given, uh, you know, we, we might come at this and think of uh, the need to in some way defend the deity of Christ, but as we saw with John, the opposite was the case, that it wasn't so much the need to defend the deity of Christ as to defend the idea that Christ as deity is God. And there is a, a, a similar sense in the book of Hebrews that deity is of a very particular kind and it bear, bears a very particular meaning in the book and it's here in these first four verses. So there may be a focus on deity apart from humanity. I think that's our natural tendency. And the, the writer is warning against this uh, in, throughout the book. Uh, even the language here in verse, you know, he talks about Jesus as the Son of God. That language is, you know, talking about the Messiah, and it may not have, for a Jew, it may not have meant deity. But for the Christians, that's what the word has come to mean. But it's deity with the idea of uh, humanity. That is, that uh, the Son of God is this messianic ruler. Uh, who the writer says he's now reigning at the right hand of the Father, but throughout, woven throughout just these first few verses, you know, he's creator, uh, he's son of God, he's the, the picture is that there's interaction with creation and redemption, uh, at the same time there's a, an acknowledgement of his reign at the right hand of the Father. The idea here is not to just say, oh, these two things happen to be there together, but rather what the writer of Hebrews is arguing throughout is that Jesus' reign at the right hand of the Father is precisely because of his humanity, precisely because of his suffering and his death. And so he wants to acknowledge Christ is exalted. He's using the language here out of, uh, many people see an echoing out of the wisdom literature, that you know Jesus is the wisdom of God, but just as He is wisdom, it is in connection with creation and redemption. You keep saying He, but you should say They. She, They, the writers. Thank you. Oh, thank sorry. Thanks, Sharon. Sorry, Sharon. I, I, thank you for correcting me. Uh, so after He's spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets. I'm talking about God here. Uh, God the man. (laughs) uh, In many portions and in many ways, he's now spoken to us by a son. Jesus was a man. We got that. We agree on that. Um, 
So the the idea here is that there's many uh, words or you know many ways in which God has spoken. What I think is is happening here in these early verses and what's happening in the book of Hebrews, and this is what I'm going to talk about tonight, is we actually get a redefinition of truth and the way that truth works. Uh, that just picking this up, we may not get the idea that we're dealing at the profoundest level of the way that the truth of Christ is working in conjunction with a given truth system. So Christ is not simply a word fitted into a series of already existing communications or words. He says he's the creator, he precedes these words, he is pre-existent, and he comes after, that is, he's the final word, he's the fullness of revelation. Um, and yet, he's not. the way that he's depicting this word of Christ is in conjunction or connection with the way that God has spoken in times past. God is speaking in both instances. So the question is, how do the many and the various ways connect or compare to the way that Christ has spoken? How does truth work? Is, how does the truth of Christ work? So we can certainly say that he's spoken fully and finally, you know, all these phrases I use myself. Uh, but how is this fullness and finality related to the incompleteness of other views? Um, so the tendency, and this is what I'm saying, the writer is obviously avoiding, the tendency will be to fit Jesus into an already existing pattern. To say, oh, Jesus fits here. But actually what the writer of Hebrews is doing is saying Jesus change, uh, changes up the entire system. This is what's happening throughout the New Testament, right? Paul isn't say, saying, oh, Jesus is everything I thought he would be as a Jew. No, what Paul is doing, and I think what the writer of Hebrews is doing, is saying everything that I thought the Old Testament was saying is changed up because of who Christ is. Uh, so Christ is the full and final word. He's the frame of reference for understanding everything else. Um, let me say this in a very unhelpful way, but let's get it out on the table. An unhelpful way of putting this is to say that Christ's truth is universal. But the notion of universal truth may not be helpful because in, you know, just the very idea of universal truth in modernity uh, is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is not doing. He's, uh, Christ, you know, the universal truth, if you think of God hold, you know, Lessing, he says, Accidental, accidental truths of history can never become the proof of necessary truths of reason. That is the ugly broad ditch which I cannot cross however often and however earnestly I have tried to make the leap. If anyone can help me leap over it, I beg him to uh, you know, let him do it. So the idea in modernity with Lessing, with, you know, th this is sort of the idea of truth that we exist, still exists around us in a late modernity is that truth is in some way uh, on the order of a 
transcendent, unchanging mathematical E equals MC squared 2 plus 2 equals 4 sort of truth. Well, what the writer of Hebrews is doing, what the New Testament is doing, is Christ is the final and full word in which he relates to history. He relates to the variety of ways that God has spoken in the past. Uh, he's the truth in and through the incarnation. And this is specifically the way that he's arguing that Jesus is superior to the angels. That is, angelic truth would seem to be a, a superior truth, right? Because when he's saying angels, he's saying the spirit beings, you know, and usually what we think of is the spirit beings as in some way on the order of a kind of modernist, you know, transcendent notion of truth. So, in a modern understanding, relative truths bound by time and history cannot be the basis for absolute truth. And absolute truth or universal truth is thought to be unchanging, necessary, and rational. I would say, yeah, that, that's the case, and this sort of truth is of no earthly good, and that's precisely not the way in which Jesus is the universal truth. Um, so, the rational truth can't come to you through history. And in this sense, Christianity and Christ cannot be true in, in that sense. So this is precisely the advent of, of atheism and you know, deism, is because of the very notion of truth. And so Hebrews is making a claim for absolute truth. Jesus is the final and full word. Uh, truth can be known in a particular person in a particular historical social setting uh, and Hebrews I believe is aimed specifically at a kind of disembodied in other words it's deconstructing or uh, taking on the notion of a disembodied knowing same thing with Gnosticism you know I don't think Gnosticism is the problem in Hebrews but it's a similar sort. You know, what would the Gnostics do? Well, they want truth on the order of a transcendent, spiritual, disembodied truth. Uh, so the real point of contrast in Hebrews 1, and this is a guy named Moffat, is not between the sun and the angels per se, but between the sun's elevation to the heavenly throne and the angels' spiritual nature. Why is Jesus superior to the angels in the argument of the book of Hebrews? Because precisely he is the incarnate one who has died, who has suffered. Uh, and throughout Hebrews, you know, he's going to talk about the Christians as, or those reading the letters, as the partakers in Christ. Uh, he, he emphasizes that we have familial, bodily ties, the blood and flesh between flesh, or rather between Jesus and, and his brothers and sisters. It says in 2.10, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory, to perfect of the author of their salvation through sufferings. How is Jesus perfect? Not because of disembodiment, but because of his embodiment. Uh... And this is in contrast to the angels in that same passage right after this. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. 
to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Uh, that he's our high priest because he suffered as we have suffered. He was, he was tempted as we were tempted, as we've been tempted. And he's able, he says, to come to the aid of those who are so tempted. And, and throughout this, the writer of Hebrews is referencing Psalms. And this, you, you know the Psalm, Psalm 8, 5. Uh, you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Uh, he's going to reference this Psalm. He's going to reference, uh, what is it, Psalm 110? Yeah. So, uh, Jesus the Son is presented in representative terms. He tastes death for all, and as a result, he's able to lead many sons to glory. And the psalm says that he's, his rule, he's put all things over his feet, sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes throughout the paths of the seas, That is, Jesus' lordship, Jesus' rule and reign is specifically over creation. He is creator and he is then once again lord over creation through the incarnation. And so that's the significance. He's made a little lower than the angels because of the suffering of death. Uh, he's crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for every fallen one. Hebrews two nine to ten. You know, he says, "Behold," and this is uh, the the psalm. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me, quoted in Hebrews two. And he says, "The children share in flesh and blood, so he himself partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death." And think here, who, who is Satan? Well, Satan is often pictured as an angel, a fallen angel. And so Jesus' rule over, you know, his reign over the angels, I assume, is inclusive of Satan himself. Um, all of this to say that what is happening in the New Testament is, that, is not what's happening in modernity. Uh, it's not what's happening in any society any notion of truth, truth is being upset here. Uh, Truth is always very limited. You know, it's limited by the very nature of humanity, by the very nature of death. Um, And so what I'd... Let me give you five examples, but starting with, you know, Hebrews. Uh... The, the sense, and this is uh, John Howard Yoder does this. He says that truth has come to us in a very particular way. But this truth demonstrates itself in relationship to the world. Born in Aramaic-speaking Palestinian Jewry, praying and socializing and theolo- theologizing only in that small society and its tongue with its scriptures, The Messianic movement in two generations had reached the capital of the world and had produced a core body of literature in the trade and culture language of the Gentile world. What Yoder is depicting is the movement from Israel, 
to Rome and throughout the Roman world in Colossae, in Philippi, in Rome itself, in Romans, in Hebrews, maybe Rome, that there is this encounter with all of these, you know, it's a pluralistic world in which there's going to be a plurality of notions of truth and a plurality of vocabularies for truth. And the writers of the New Testament are demonstrating the truth of Christ in relationship to this plural, this plural, plural notion of truth. Uh, Yoder again, Jesus' believers with a relative smaller, more homogenous, poor, less speculative, pretentious worldview moved with their hometown forms of faith into the encounter with peoples and meaning systems which have no place for the confident call to de- for the confident call to decision the jesus movement was utterly particular the hellenistic roman world was classically pluralistic uh, i've offended many uh, <laughs> that is the particular uh, particularism of the gospel the particularity of the gospel is the scandal of the gospel but that's precisely what the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing is the particularity and in and through this particularity this is the way that we come at universality Uh, this is Yoder again talking about the cosmology of the Hebrews Angels at the top have access to the divine presence from which they bear the word of the divine will to earth. Priests at the bottom are raised from among their fellows to mediate by bringing to the altar on their own behalf for all the gifts and sacrifices which can cover sin. Instead of claiming for the son of Adam his place just beneath the angels, however, Messiah is declared to be above them at the Lord's right hand, appointed son, uh, reflecting the stamp of the divine nature upholding the universe. That is, here is Adam, you know, very similar to an argument in Paul, but think here, you know, in Philippians, claiming not to be equal, equality with God, something to be grasped, that was the problem of the first Adam. The second Adam emptied himself. And so, the writer of Hebrews is using the imagery, the language of the, the of Judaism, but he's locating, you know, in he's taking the priesthood, he's taking the temple, he's taking uh, the the idea of the sacrifices and even the angels, and he's showing the truth of Christ in connection to to each of these. Uh, So this cosmic honor was no exemption from human limits, Yoder said. His perfection is not a timeless divine status, but was attained through weakness with prayers and supplications. So he fully assumes the priestly system as both priest and victim. In summary, in short then, Truth is not something we possess. Uh, it's not something we own. Our, our contribution to proving or bringing about the sovereignty of you know, the, the truth of Christ is through faithfulness to Jesus. 
to Hebrews 2, 8 to 9, as it is, we do not yet see everything in subjected to subjection to him. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The, the notion here is that we do not have absolute truth demonstrated in an absolute fashion to us, but we have evidence to or witness to absolute truth in and through Jesus uh, making all things subject to himself. And that's being worked out in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, but it's also being worked out in the book of Hebrews through the lives of Christians. Maybe I should pause here. I, I just feel like I'm just losing everybody. Yeah, mm-hmm. I have some. Okay, I'm sorry. No, that's not the right one. I'm confused what you mean by truth isn't something grasp. It's not something we can have. Okay, uh, it's not something that we can own in a modernist fashion, like one plus one equals two. That is a kind of truth. You've got it. It's your truth. The truth of Christ is one that is being worked out in and through history as his lordship and sovereignty is being demonstrated in his life, death, and resurrection. But even that lordship is one that continues to be worked out as the reign and rule of Christ through Christians in their faithfulness continues to be a demonstration of the truth. So, to put it in the words of Hebrews 1, tell me if I'm getting this right or if I misunderstand it. It's, God has spoken to us in His Son, and what does it mean, in His Son? Well, the radiance of His glory, exact representation of His nature, upholding all things by the word of His power, as in it's Jesus Christ Himself that is the spoken word, and that's how we redefine truth. It's not as though it's completely opposed to propositional things, but it's like, the propositional stuff isn't all there is. Um, truth is found inside of a person in Jesus Christ. Yes, truth is personal, yes. Yeah, you said it well. It's not that it's exclusive of a propositional understanding of principles or theories, uh, but the personal truth that we have in Christ then uh, functions at the level of personhood, having to do with suffering, death, things that pertain to human personhood. And so he is the representation of God. He's the icon of God in history, in time and space and history. Yeah, I'm just agreeing with you. So, I, but then I don't understand what you mean by truth is something that is... Maybe this is maybe what... My understanding is what of what you're saying is that truth runs parallel to the essence of God, which is the working out of salvation and sanctification and embodying the resurrection both in and through Christ in the church. I don't yes, know. yes, yeah, the, 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 the truth, the continuation of the incarnation in and through the church is a continuing witness to the nature of truth. 
truth is, you know, the the illustration could you could carry it out. We could go through uh, Colossae. You know, what's happening at Colossae? They have this cosmology, and you know, the, you might think, oh, we'll just stick Jesus into our cosmology. But what Paul is doing in Colossians is changing up. He's saying that it's not Jesus as a part of the principalities and powers, but Jesus is, in fact, defeating. He reigns over. He's redeeming the principalities and powers. Uh, We could do the revelation, uh, you know, in which the seals of history are unbroken. And then Jesus comes and breaks the seal, and the meaning of history unfolds. I think that's the picture. I'm, I'm wondering, you keep using the word truth, uh, maybe it's just my translation, but I don't find the word truth anywhere in here. Uh, is it just that you're equating God's revelation as truth, and just sort of switching the, the verbiage there? Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, it's the, the word's not there, but the idea of the final and full revelation of God right. in but Christ the focus is, is revelation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and so the uh, the 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 what has been revealed to us? Well, in some way, the secret of history. Where's history going? Uh, the nature of human existence. The uh, power over sin and death. Uh, so when Jesus in John says, "I'm the way, the truth, and the life," I think it's par- a parallel understanding here. He's the truth in connection to creation and fall. And so the truth is one that is a redemptive truth. The truth is a sal- salvific truth that Jesus saves as the way and the truth, as revelation. And he saves because of who he is in connection with creation. Uh, now this is the, the language of wisdom is throughout Hebrews. Wisdom has to do with a pre- applied truth. Uh, in a modernist understanding, the, the truth is just a principle that floats free of the world. But the very nature of wisdom, the very nature of Christ, is that it relates to the reality of the world. As in Revelation, it opens the seals of history. As in Colossians, it shows Christ's reign is over and against the principalities and powers. In Philippians, you know, it's the reversal of what's happened in Adam. The Adam who would claim equality with God. That is reversed in that Christ's sonship is established. Because he emptied himself, he does not claim equality. He's crucified. Uh, Yoder does, you know, the book of the opening of John, in which there's kind of a reflection of a Gnostic understanding, but not to, in any way, affirm a Gnostic understanding, but to show that light defeats dark. Light, uh, life defeats death. So he's referencing the language, and that's what I'm just saying in each instance. The writers are picking up language that would be used in the particular places that the letters are written and showing how truth, uh, the truth, or who Christ is, 
is understood in that context. And so too with the book of Hebrews in the context of Israel, here's the way that the truth of Christ works itself out. But once we get the pattern, we can just keep doing the pattern as missionaries. Because that's the way that the the revelation of Christ works. It will always, it's not strange news that Christ brings. It's like, oh, I never heard of that. But it's news in a particular setting in which the culture and understanding of truth in a particular place is turned on its head and there is the recognition of who Christ is not in an absence of culture but in and through the culture but again not because the frame of the culture holds but because the frame of Christ gives us a way of interpreting or apprehending culture in verse 3 it says in like the middle and he sustains all things by his powerful word and kind of what my mental picture that of what you're talking about is the sustaining nature of the incarnation of Christ and the resurrection and the appearances you know post resurrection appearances the ascension that there's a continued action on God's behalf, in Christ Jesus. Yeah, that that because of sin and death, uh, there the the there the sustaining word of Christ has entered into sin and death, and overturned them. A lot of times we picture truth, or even God as something that's very stagnant, but sustaining is probably a better mental picture on our understanding of the work truth is dynamic yeah and that's yeah that's precisely the idea here this is a dynamic truth going into history well it sounds like right if you when you finish the the verse the sustaining of all things seems to have to do with if you think of a kingdom that's being ruled by god and now after the He's provided purification for sin. He's sitting at the right hand of majesty. So, therefore, he is ruling with God. And so that is the sustaining, that that God sustains everything. And Jesus sustains all things as a part of his majesty. The question about, yeah, yeah, the, the question though about seated at the right hand of God. Why is Christ seated at the right of hand of God? Why does Christ reign? And why is Christ's reign or sovereignty, what does that have to do with our salvation? And the point that the writer of Hebrews is making, he reigns or rules precisely because of the incarnation and the representation of human embodiment at the right hand of God so that he continues as high priest because he has suffered and is seated at the right hand of God because he has died and he's been raised so that the you know this was our our talk last week the ascension of Christ and Christ seated at the right hand of God is on the basis of his life death and resurrection 
So the reign is a real world reign in which Christ's power is exercised over sin and death. In which we enter into God's rest. I'm saying a very simple thing here. Maybe I, maybe I made it too complicated. Um, and that is, I'm just saying that, that uh, you know, we were talking for communion. Where is the temple of God? Well, this is it. The, the, the world, the cosmos, the oikos of God is being established in the church. It's not a, you know, we could talk about a heavenly reign and rule, but the, even that heavenly reign and rule is not something separate from the creation, but itself, you know, Jesus has come and redeemed creation. And so that's what's being worked on. This, this gets, uh, this is the argument, you know, of the writer of Hebrews when he comes to the particulars of Judaism, when he becomes to the particulars of Melchizedek, that he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. How, on what basis is Jesus high priest? You know, he's high priest, he's also the, the, the lamb that is sacrificed, he's the, he's the summing up of that Old Testament system, but he's the summing up in a very different way than anyone imagined. That was my attempt at an introduction uh, to just the first few verses. The verses are heavy. Uh, and I think as we go through Hebrews, we'll, we'll never really depart from the introduction because the writer is giving us a very dense introduction. So maybe if I've completely confused you at this point... Uh, it, it will work itself out. Or maybe I'm saying something so offensive that you will never agree to it. This is Yoder's summation. Yoder goes through, he gives us five different examples. Uh, Hebrews is one of them, of the way in which Christ is the demonstrable truth. And he says, in each instance, the writer becomes quite at home in the new linguistic world using its language and facing its question. Number two, instead of fitting the Jesus message into the slots the cosmic vision has ready for it, the writer places Jesus above the cosmos in charge of it. Number three, that there is in each case a powerful concentration upon being rejected and suffering in human form beneath the cosmic hierarchy as that which accredits Christ for the Lordship. What we're encountering in Hebrews, you encounter in Philippians, you encounter in, in you know, Colossians. Number four, that instead of salvation constituting our integration into a salvation system, which the cosmos had already for us to enter into through ritual or initiation, what we are called to enter into is the self-emptying and the death, and only by that path and by the grace, uh, the resurrection of the Son. Number five, that behind the cosmic victory enabling it, there is affirmed essentially essentiality with the Father, 
possession of the image of God and the participation of the Son in creation and providence. Number six, the writer and the readers of these messages share by faith in all that the victory means. What Yoder is doing, what he's describing, is a deep structure that the truth of Christ, the way in which the truth, and again I'm using the word truth, the, the way in which the reality of who God is in Christ, uh, is a deep structure that addresses every human culture, society, notion of truth. And so he's extrapolating from you know, these five ways, one of which would be the, the writer of Hebrews. Um, so, in, you know, the, the, the last one here, we might just quote Hebrews. Brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly call, contemplate Jesus, apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful in God's house, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ was faithful over God's house as a son. We are his household as we hold fast our confidence and pride in our hope. So he's taking ordinary Jewish things and making them of cosmic significance. They, she, Priscilla. Just they were.